Good morning, this is Coffee with the Sarlos, and I'm Karen. And I'm Kelly, and today we are welcoming for Men's Month our first guest and good friend of ours, Dan Large. Welcome. Hey, how are you guys? Good, Dan. Um, I, I, can I start? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. So, Kelly and I thought about inviting you here um, as a parent um, and as a male parent. So, I'm going to start with when you found out you were going to be a parent, what the hell? Like, were you, yeah, this is cool or was this rough going? And even if it was rough, I think it can be for both men and women, so I'm not picking mm-hmm. on you. It can be, it can be a oh shit uh, moment for uh, the woman as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but did you kind of have to go through a transition of sorts? Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, okay. I was I was very shocked. It wasn't uh, we weren't planning on getting pregnant, um, and as you guys both know, you know, being a parent, having kids was not something that I saw in my future. You know honestly, really at all, let alone in the immediate future at the time. Um, so it definitely was a shock. Um, it took some time to get used to the idea. And it just wasn't something that I was really mentally prepared for, you know. I mean, I don't know that anyone's really prepared to be a parent. I think people think they are more than maybe they are and they find out after yeah. the fact. But but it's certainly not something I planned on. Yeah, I think it's a good point because I think sometimes... Um, whether maybe if you're a female, you think the male's always ready <laughs> or geez, that didn't come out right. <laughs> <laughs> I have a habit of doing that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, that could be making people spit their coffee out right now. It's possible, yeah. Um, but I, women don't feel ready either. And I don't think that's a gender thing or a parent thing. Sometimes it's just change. Yeah. And I think um, it also can be relative to your partner too. So in our case... Um, you know, Rachel knew that, that I didn't really plan on having kids or want to have kids. So, you know, I think for her, it was very scary even to tell somebody that she knew felt that way, that she was pregnant and we were going to have a child together. Uh, I'm sure that must have been a scary moment for her. You know, I know, you know, we, we, we both dealt with it in our own way. She was, you know, very emotional and I sort of awkwardly laughed under controllable and sort of just felt like I was in shock for a couple of days. It took me a while to to come to terms with the idea at all. Oh, that I love your, like the honesty is appreciated because I can relate that to working in a funeral home where people grieved and laughed and didn't, oh, like not every response is always what we think it's going to be. And sometimes we surprise ourselves with our responses to things. Oh, for sure. And sometimes we do things that, that after the fact we may feel, you know, was insensitive or what have you, but it's just, you know, we're just not prepared for it at all. And you just don't know what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good question to start out with too, um, because what you're illustrating is probably what many couples or individuals have felt. And perhaps the females need to hear that this is normal mm-hmm. and that it's not a selfish partner. It's just, it's a process of mm-hmm. new information. Um, but also for, for men, if they have felt trapped or they have felt like this surprise came upon them and they maybe don't have, I'll say, quote unquote, the right to decide whether a woman keeps or doesn't mm-hmm. keep a child. Um, the transition that it does take to, like you say, accept what what's happening. Um, so to I, I love that it's illustrating that there doesn't have to be shame, that this is just a natural process mm-hmm. no matter where you stand or think you stand. Yeah, and I've always made an effort to be pretty open about that because, I mean, certainly with the people that are my friends and I care about, I, I 
think I'm a pretty open person. And also because I know, you know, f- for example, shortly after becoming a parent, um, I experienced this sort of interesting thing I didn't know was going to happen where all of a sudden other men I knew that had young children approached me and told me all of these things about their feelings and the, the anxieties they had and, you know, being angry at a crying baby and all these things that they didn't feel like could tell anybody else. Yay, welcome to Men's Month. Yeah, exactly. And all of a sudden you're in, you're in that, you know, pardon the phrase, but club, you're another one of the guys that must be going through the same thing. So it's okay. I can tell you, uh, I can tell you these things that I don't feel like I can share with anybody else because I, you know, and they do invoke personal shame. You don't feel great about yourself if you're having those feelings, you know? Just off the top of my head, was this a club that you entered into after birth or was this a club once they found out you were a dad-to-be? I'd say a little bit of the first, but a lot more of the second. So certainly after, you know, after people knew that you had had the baby and you'd gone home and you were a few months in it, for me it was a lot of, uh, you know, seeing a friend that you hadn't seen and, you know, people that live out of town, they come home for Christmas or Thanksgiving or what have you and you haven't seen them in six months. You know, so there's that time gap, and now you've got this little infant, and that's when <laughs> the other guys would say, "Oh my God, this you know this thing happened, and I felt this way," and and you could see just the sort of raw emotion, you know, from from sort of like you know panic to anger to all of these things crossing their faces. They retold these stories that again, that's my immediate feeling was, "Wow, this is stuff that that I never really heard anyone say," and I I I don't think you would have told me this. I know you didn't tell me this before. So now now you feel like you can tell me because you know that I'm experiencing the same thing. There's a lot in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, like you're talking about it as being a parent and I think about the same thing when you're diagnosed. It's like you 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 get into the club. Mm-hmm. And sometimes coming into a club, like, you know, somebody's listening to this and they go, well, maybe I don't understand what Dan's saying, but I got cancer. And that brought you into a club where people can talk about what they really feel and all the stages they go through. And in no way am I trying to compare having a child with cancer. Um, but I just mean that we all get it in different ways that we have to mm-hmm. go through what Kelly's saying. We have to go through process and that because of the process, as you're talking about, we get forced into, or not forced, but invited to communicate. Mm-hmm. You're talking about how you guys just sort of sat there and you were able to communicate with each other. So I don't know if this is a weird question, Dan, but how did that happen? Uh, which part, sorry? The communicating. How did it begin? Is it awkward? Is it just, is it just something where you just, I don't know, I think peop- some people who think that guys don't go through that mm-hmm. are wondering how that kind of happened. No, you know, if anything, it, w- it was all very organic. I mean, again, it, I can only speak for myself that I've always had very sort of open relationships with my male friends, right? So um, not everybody may experience that. So I think if you're not, and I'm going to digress a little bit, if you're not brought up to feel like it's all right to express emotions as a man or all of these other dis- you know, issues, different ideas of masculinity, um, like, I mean, I certainly was brought up to, you know, it's okay to, to feel things, to cry, to give somebody a hug, to whatever. And if you'd not brought up to find those points of connection with people, then maybe these would be harder conversations to start. But because I'm very close with my male friends, I think for the most part, people are comfortable saying things, even if they're emotional or they're hard or what have you. They don't feel as closed off as I imagine some men might feel. Um, so in most cases, they're all pretty organic conversations. It was, you know, the normal, you know, haven't seen you in a while, you know, man hug, whatever, and then talking about, you know, you know, how's life, how's it with the new baby, 
are you getting any sleep? And it just sort of evolves, you know, into the, you know, well, this happened and that happened and it becomes a shared experience that you get to talk about. But in the process of that, there was just this sort of raw honesty about the experiences and the emotions and how hard it actually was that I don't think, well, I know you don't necessarily feel comfortable telling someone else because they haven't had that same, same common experience, you know? Can I ask you about one of those difficult experiences? Oh, man. Um, well, certainly, you know, my first son, Liam, was not a sleeper. So he woke up, I don't know if I got this exactly factually correct, probably something like every two hours for six months or so, you know, and I know other parents certainly experience the same thing, colicky or what have you. And, you know, you get to a point where you are sort of burned out, overtired, sleep deprived, and you just don't know what else to do, you know, and you're just sort of emotionally unraveling so to speak and you know these are moments where people feel all kinds of things towards an infant that it's not okay to say you know you feel angry you feel all of these different things and resentful and what have you and most people wouldn't feel comfortable walking out in public and talking to somebody about you know how is the first six months with your child well you know like these aren't the kinds of things that we want to hear we want to hear these lovely lovely romantic stories about a new family and the lovely baby and all these things and that's all true and it's a wonderful experience but there are also parts of it that are very hard and i don't think uh, people feel like it's acceptable to say a lot of those things in some circumstances and to say it out loud um you know so i think that's sort of the type of stuff that got talked about in a way that i wouldn't have expected I remember listening to Rachel when you guys were going through um, the kind of, well, Liam coming into the world Mm -hmm. uh, and her jokingly but truthfully saying that the book that you guys were reading just continuously said on every page, don't shake the baby. (laughs) Um, And she said she was laughing about it, but there comes a point where it's just so necessary that it's drilled into your head that many times because of the emotions Mm -hmm. and the sleep deprivation. That, yeah, that for sure. Experience. And I mean, we did prenatal classes and, and they, they honestly said it so many times. And the point where people are kind of laughing about it in the class and the nurse is going, but you really, you have no idea. Like you're going to be, you may be at a point where you're almost in like a sleep psychosis and yeah. you're just not, you're not a reasonable, rational human being. So, and that's where that whole, you know, put them down and walk away thing comes from, you know, which to this day, you know, sometimes if my kids are just, you know, if they've, if I'm completely raw, I've been known to look at my kids and just go, look, dad needs a timeout. I need a timeout right now. I'm going to go into another room <laughs> great. and I'm going to sit there for five or 10 minutes until I can regain myself because, you know, you just, they're wonderful experience having kids, but there's also points where you are just absolutely done, you know? This, this is great. Um, and I'm glad that you brought that up mm-hmm. because I vividly remember being at uh, one of your dinner parties where we were all up in the, in the living room asking where Eli was, your youngest, and you had said that he put himself in a timeout. Mm-hmm. He put himself to bed. Yeah, he did. Because he just was too overwhelmed. So I'm, I'm listening to you say that you're communicating with both of your sons, saying dad needs a timeout, mm-hmm. that it's factual, that it's controlled emotions, just saying I'm not in a good place, and this is a tool that you're using for yourself, uh, and your your sons are following. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's one of the biggest things I think we can offer our children, right, is that we have to show them ways to cope. And by no means am I suggesting that I have those ways all the time. But there are times when I do a good job. And, and, and th- I think that's one of them. You know, if you show them that, look, it's okay to be upset. It's okay to be angry. These things happen. But what you do with that, you know, how do you, how do you cope? How do you manage? How do you handle it well? How do you find a solution to a problem, not focus on the negative? All of those kinds of things. And sometimes it's just that you just need to remove yourself from a situation and give yourself a break and calm down. And if you're three or if you're 
37, <laughs> which I am, that, that that might be an acceptable coping mechanism regardless of the of the 34-year differential, you know? That's awesome. I think a lot of people need to hear that. I, I remember um, when Andrew was small, he would say to me when I came home from work sometimes, um, I know you're in a bad mood. And I would say, oh, no, 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 I'm not. I'm just I'm just coming home from work. Happy to see mm-hmm. you guys. And he would just look me straight in the face. He was like four years old. No, you're not. Just dead. Yeah. And like he knew he and he'd say to me, um, I know that before you leave work, what kind of a mood you're in, mom. And it was just point blank, Dan, where I had to kind of stand at the door and go, okay, this is serious shit. He's four years old. Yeah. He knows, he knows that I'm lying, first of all. So there's something. He knows his mom's lying because she's, she's trying to hold it together, looking like she's got her shit together. And he's calling me out on mm-hmm. it. And I can either fudge my way through that and bulldoze over him and bully him. Or I can admit that he's correct. Mm-hmm. And as you say, take my time out. Because yeah. in other words, he was trying to say to me, you need a time out before you come in the house. <laughs> well, and don't you think it's really important for kids to see that adults have moments where they do handle things well and moments where they don't. But the, the difference is what you said. It's whether or not you you just get angry and never offer an explanation or a solution. You know, again, it you know, you we all lose our cool, even with children, right? We don't want to, but it happens, you know. But there are other ways to handle that, you know. So I'll come back with the kids sometimes and talk to them after the fact and say, look, like, I'm really sorry that daddy got upset, and I'll explain myself to them. And that's not to excuse myself, but it's just to try and explain to them why, you know. It's to give them something rather than nothing, you know. So when you're in that kind of a conversation, Dan, like, you just pointed out that you apologize. Mm-hmm. Um that's huge. So if anyone needs to hit pause, um, that's totally cool for them to hit pause because you're going to hit something there with some listeners who've had dads or brothers or moms. We, you know, we don't have to just put this on men, but that's somebody I I can point out some females in my life who I've never heard an apology from, Mm -hmm. um, that the apology in and of itself means that you've acknowledged something. Well, and you've also told them it's not their fault. And that there isn't something wrong with them and that they shouldn't be ashamed, right? Like there's this huge difference between leaving children always from, you know, feeling essentially on the inside, like it must be their fault. They must have done something wrong. They should be ashamed of themselves because if you're an adult and you lose your cool and you lose your temper, you're the adult, they're the child. You need to help them understand that it isn't their fault that in that moment you weren't your best. You know, that's your fault. It's your responsibility and you should explain that to them. You know, that's really, really important. I'm also going to point out, Mom, just in your your example, that there was validation as well. So when when any human being says, I'm picking up on what you're feeling, and you deny them that truth, it's it's what we've always referred to as crazy making. Mm-hmm. You're, you're saying, I'm not yeah. willing to admit to that, so I'm going to make you believe that you aren't correct, that you aren't intuitive, and that you can't trust your own instincts. Exactly. And do you want to do that to a three-year-old or a five-year-old or a six-year-old? Well, I'm going to say some listeners do, Dan, because that gives them a power over and mm-hmm. that gives them a control over, which some people believe they're supposed to have as parents or yeah. teachers or priests or ministers or whatever. Um, there's there's a variety of, of things because in s- some North American cultures, some 
they do believe that they have the right to do that. Yeah. And and I'm grateful that you're pointing out that a healthy a healthy adult does not. Yeah. That's uh, John Bradshaw would call that the poisonous pedagogy, right? That's the that sort of old school power over way of dealing with children. And I mean, there, there's so many things that, that can create, right? And that's something that's very important to me, for sure. Well, one of the things it's going to create, like Kelly said, is the crazy making. Mm-hmm. Um, but and and with that will come fear and being confounded, uh, being confused. So what what Kelly and I are hearing that you're saying is that you're creating a basis. For for Eli and Liam, where they're going to feel safe, where mm-hmm. they're going to feel emotionally secure, so that they can express their own emotions. Exactly. Yeah. And you're telling what, what I'm hearing too is that you're modeling that for any of their friends, male, female, that associate with them, because that's going to be their basis. Mm-hmm. They don't come from the same foundation as the child who lives in the next door home, whose parents don't offer that. I think it's important too, because some people will will draw their own parallel, but not necessarily correctly. Because um, I'm I'm trying to picture what you've just talked about, and you're talking about leaving the room, mm-hmm. and a lot of people do this in arguments, and I'll and I'll pick on adults at this point, or I'll say children who of an age that know better, where they'll <laughs> leave the room yeah. while someone's talking to them, um, and they may return after the fact to readdress a conversation, but the initial excusing yourself saying, I'm going to put myself in a timeout acknowledges that, that something has occurred, that someone has spoken and that you're, you're saying, I'm going to leave the room, mm-hmm. but there's an expectation that you will return and yeah, it will be addressed. Yeah. And that is what creates the safety. Excusing yourself from the situation alone does not create safety. No, and I, I would never walk away from them and not say anything. You know, I would never leave the room and not tell them why ever. Right. You know, I, 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 absolutely not. And so, you know, I think about the time Eli put himself to bed. Yeah. Where if he wants to come back out and go, Dad, I had a nap. I was tired. I wasn't really mad. I was just tired. Mm-hmm. He gets to come over to you and explain to you why he put himself to bed. That, yeah. Dad, I'm not mad at you. <laughs> I just recognized I was too overwhelmed. What a great, like you said, foundation. Yeah, and they'll they'll both do that not even for going to bed or timeouts, for example. They'll also just do it sometimes and just say, you know, Dad, I, I just want to be alone right now. I just want to be alone for a few minutes, you know. And you just give them some space. So and good. Th- they'll go and play or do something or flip through a book or whatever. And inevitably what happens, same thing with the timeouts, you know. Um, they'll come out of the room 10 minutes later, you know, it, it's like it's mostly washed away or all washed away. And they'll come out and say, you know, hey, I'm, you know, I'm ready to come back to the table and eat dinner or I'm ready to go to this, you know. So rather than just continuing to butt heads or, or, or you know, have a conflict kind of explode, you just give it that moment to kind of dissipate and let everybody calm down. I love it. Thank you. Are you okay if I take you backward for yes. just a moment? Um, and I just mean backward in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had originally talked about the shock and the process that you went through, um, just finding out that you were going to be a dad. Um, but I really want, if you're comfortable, to talk about um, the feelings that you had afterwards uh, about attachment mm-hmm. or non-attachment. Are you are you okay to, to kind of share your experience with that? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 another one of those differences between the experiences that men and women have in life, and I think, you know, you know, childbirth and child child rearing, you know, is a huge example of that. You know, so if you're a young father, I mean, you don't you don't get pregnant, you don't carry a baby, you don't feel a kick, you don't deliver it, you don't breastfeed, um, and so uh, 
Uh, not that those aren't all very difficult things, because of course that they are, but um, you have a different experience of, of building intimacy with a child. And I say child because for me, I didn't really feel a whole lot with an infant. Um, you know, they don't, when they're, when they're brand new and they come home, they don't, they don't look at you, they don't talk to you, they don't, there's not, where are the points of connection? I mean, that's what I felt, you know. And again, I know this is one of these things that probably a lot of people aren't comfortable saying, but it's true that for me, my feeling was where is that point of connection? So, uh, you know, I'm a, a man that grew up in my entire living memory, you know, having conversation and eye contact and touch and all of the things that we have that are the points of connection we have with our friends and family and loved ones, you know, and everybody around us. And then all of a sudden you've got this little person who you're told you should just have this immediate, wonderful, intimate bond with because they're your child, but you're not really getting anything back from them. There's no sort of sensory contact or anything, you know? And so, you know, you do the things that you can. You, you, you try and rock them to sleep and give mom a break and change diapers and do laundry and cook food and do all of these things and go to work, but, but you don't have that intimate connection that mom has right off the bat. And I realize, you know, again, there's all kinds of difficulties for women with newborns for sure, but um, it's still this huge difference, you know? And it, for me, it took until... You know, you've got this little person that their eyes are open and they're looking at you and they grab your finger and they start to crawl and do things. And that's, you know, the older they got, the more I felt connected and the more intimacy and connection I felt with my kids. But I certainly didn't feel it with newborns. You know, I, I sort of felt this sense of raw terror at <laughs> bring this child home <laughs> from the hospital. I mean, that's, that's people have asked me, you know, as a joke or my response has been, you know, like the scariest day of my life was the day I was told I had to take Liam home from the hospital. You know, you wake up in the morning and they're like, oh my God, are you serious? You know, I don't, I'd never even babysat, <laughs> you know, I didn't, I had no skills at all. I mean, what do I do with this child now? I've just, le I have to leave the safety of the hospital and the nurses and all these things. Yeah, interesting. Can you, if you're comfortable, also talk about the disconnect that happened between partners at this point? Oh, for sure. Uh, and that all applies as well, you know, uh, and for all kinds of reasons that make sense. But, you know, mom has to give, you know, virtually speaking, everything to this newborn child. You know, she has to, you know, take care of it. And again, it starts with, you know, pregnancy even to a certain extent. You know, you get this whole experience that she's she's carrying this baby and feeling the kicks and all of these things and all through the childbirth, you know. And I think, you know, we were a really great team, especially for Liam, you know, and, and we were, you know, I was right there when he was born. Um, and you go home and sort of shortly after that, everything, well, basically at that moment, everything changes because, up till childbirth, you're sort of the other half of that equation the whole time, you know. And if you're me, I went to the prenatal classes and we did, we had a, you know, birthing and breathing coach and we did breathing, we did all these things together, right? And then all of a sudden you come home with an infant and mom has to get to dedicate virtually all of her energy to taking care of the infant, right? Literally, like her body, her energy, everything goes to taking care of this child. Um, and your role all of a sudden becomes taking care of baby, but also taking care of mom. But you don't have the time and the intimacy and the conversation and, and all of these things. You don't get to sleep in bed and cuddle with each other because there's an infant either there or crying every two hours. You know, so it certainly, it certainly left me feeling a lack of connection or you, you feel like you've lost so much of the intimacy that you had in the relationship, which is, of course, what brought you to have kids. You know, it's, it's an interesting paradox. I can't thank you enough because I, and, and part of me wants to apologize because what an awful experience. Um, but at the same time, thank you so much for sharing because 
it's a void that most people feel, but like you say, are too, too afraid to talk about mm-hmm. uh, and maybe even too afraid to talk about within their, their own relationship. And I think that's, you know, I think if there was more conversation, you know, for instance, you go to prenatal classes, you all, you know, uh, breathing coaching, all the stuff, you know, but there isn't really anyone saying, hey guys, so here's what's about to happen. You know, you're about to have this baby and you're going to go home and then you're going to lose sleep and time and connection. And you have to try and stay strong and be there for each other because on the other end, at some point, you know, this is the person that you have. When they're 18. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. (laughs) And I say that because I think that's true for some couples. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there are listeners that would go, oh, yeah, that's that's it. And and some would jokingly say, no, 28. (laughs) Yeah. Or whatever age, right? Um, Because some, some couples don't ever don't ever come out of that, I think. That's true. Where there is all, like where the children end up becoming one parent's um, priority mm-hmm. uh, in, in a new relationship and where a spouse, a, par- a partner, it's going to say a former partner, but they will feel like that. Mm-hmm. They would feel like a former partner, like they're just sort of tagging along and, and that it really does require work again for the couple oh, yeah to come back and find each other. Mm-hmm. And some can, and some can't, and they can't admit it. They can't. They'll, they will stay together, but deep down, no, they didn't get past it. Yeah, or in some cases, you know, you can manage through it, you know, once or twice, depending on how many kids you have, but you may yeah. not manage through it the second or third time. Right, right. or the ninth. Yeah, <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> or, you know, some in, in, in some northern communities, I will say in Ontario anyway, <laughs> after the 20th yeah. <laughs> child. Uh, and pregnancy because it has happened yeah. that, that that is how many ger- generations uh what the men went through so and and the wives so dan ha- did you find when you were going through that um at that beginning time when you're talking about when your first son came home liam and you're starting to feel disconnect in your group of friends are you able do you find a space there do you find a comfort to, to be able to communicate it to somebody? Yes and no. Yes, again, in that, that I have very close friends, so I think there's a lot more conversation about things more openly than there are for some people. No, in the sense that I don't think, again, you're not prepared for it. You don't know what's coming. And it's one of these things in life that I think it's very much a 20 or a hindsight type of thing, you know, where it's easy to identify it and talk about it and understand it now. At the time you're right in the middle of it and you don't you don't understand what's going on you know you're too tired to understand what's going on you know so it you know again it's one of these things i think if there were there's more conversation about it before you have kids then maybe you would sort of have heard the stories and have the understanding and go oh i I sort of understand what's happening right now and you could have that conversation with your partner too um but i don't certainly from my experience that wasn't the way it was it wasn't something that i was that i was prepared for at all is it fair to say then you felt isolated in that? Uh, there were certainly times that I did, yes. Um, you know, I think for for me, almost more so after my second child, which might seem counterintuitive to some people. Uh, but again, I mean, the experience, you know, I've only had two, but even I can say that the experiences you go through, you know, having one child versus a second or more, if you have more, they're all different, right? So, and the effects as a new relationship are all different. Are you okay if I, if I fast forward now? Yes. Okay. Um, 
So obviously raising two boys, um, what values are you focused on instilling in them? Uh, I think sort of the basic things that we need to understand to sort of value all humanity, you know? I mean, you think sort of basic things like kindness and empathy, um, you know, respect for other people regardless of what their background is, what the color of their skin is, what their sexual orientation is, uh, sort of things that make us value everyone, you know? It's one of these things that I think, you know, human history is filled with people finding differences between, you know, I and someone else, and that as soon as there's a difference and there's a way to dehumanize, et cetera, there's a way to view somebody else as not as being, you know, as good as you or whatever. It's sort of the basis for most of all human conflict, right? Um, you know, which obviously is not what we're talking about here, but um, but I think it's really important, you know, to understand. You know, I grew up in a household where, you know, my mom's best friend was a gay man when I grew up. We spent tons of time in Toronto. We ate all kinds of ethnic food. We had Japanese exchange students in our house, you know, it, sort of the exposure for a kid in Northern Ontario to sort of culture and differences in humanity was rich. And so I, I didn't ever, I never grew up feeling like anyone was really different than me. We just, the differences were almost what made it the, to the world so colorful and wonderful, not, not, not a negative, you know? It's actually exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes, you're right. I, because we're, we're working so hard to focus an entire month on men's issues, and men are the ones that go to war mm -hmm. m as a Absolutely. majority, right? Uh, and there is a mentality that has is bred from a very young age, you know, given the types of toys and hobbies that yeah. are pushed oh, on yeah. them uh, or encouraged uh, to create that mentality young. Yeah. So when we ask what values you're instilling and how you choose to do that, that's what we want to know. Yeah, for sure. And that, I mean, that's that's a big thing. I mean, obviously, men and women are exposed to different things as they grow up. But um, certainly the idea that our society, you know, pushes on young boys of what sort of it is to be masculine, to be a man, you know, are, <laughs> for me, not necessarily the things I want my kids to believe in, for sure. Um, you know, and, and so... Yeah, certainly all those things, you know, kindness and empathy and, and respect and, and, and just that sort of basic understanding that everybody is human and we have way more commonality than we have difference, you know. And if you look for the common ground with other people, you're always going to find way more than you find differences, you know. And I think if more people lived life that way, we just wouldn't, the world would be a different place. Is it fair to say you're a very curious person? Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I think that's accurate, eh, Dan? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, it's what I see in you, is your curiosity. Mm -hmm. uh, whenever I see you at a dinner party, I see you engaging in, with anybody at the party. It's yeah. like whoever's standing beside you, you can turn to and create a conversation. And so when I think about what your sons see is a deep, true interest in another person. Mm -hmm. There's a... There's a, a um, a strength of integrity in the conversation that you're trying to find something to connect to with them. Even if you don't know what it is, it's like you look for something or you'll ask questions to see what you can pull out of them. That if it's a common ground, you have something to talk about. Yeah. But yeah. if it isn't, I also see where you just like asking questions so that they're engaged in the conversation well, with you. Isn't that sort of a huge thing that's missing in the modern world? I mean, if you look at everything that's happened in the last little while and U.S. elections and everything, I mean, there's, there's actually a growing conversation about the fact that there seems to be a lack of intelligent debate anymore, that you almost can't have a conversation with someone unless you agree with them, you know, that this is somehow an incendiary thing to not have the same beliefs or, believe, you know, or, or understand things the same way. 
when isn't again isn't that the human experience we've got people that live all over the world that grew up in different climates religions all of these different things we're never going to agree on everything right well it, if humanity can't have a conversation with another person you know if you can't have a conversation with another person that doesn't believe the same thing as you where will you ever connect where will you ever understand another person where will you ever see value in that other person you know it's hugely important you know we should be interested and curious in other people and cultures and all of these things and this is how we find commonality you've spoken a lot about culture and i know you're a huge foodie mm -hmm. so i want to dive in and ask how you have put or in what ways you've put efforts into educating your kids already because they're still very young um, about cultures and foods yeah, that's, uh, I mean, anyone that knows me knows that food is a very I'm going to give thing. you two minutes because I know where this can go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyone that knows me knows that food is a really important thing to me. Um, you know, and again, to, to talk a little bit briefly just about my upbringing, again, like what I spoke to earlier, you know, I grew up eating, you know, my mother was an amazing cook, you know, my dad's a good cook too. And we ate Indian food and North African food and Japanese food. And we spent a lot of time in Toronto, went to dim sum restaurants in Chinatown. And it for me, it was just a huge thing. I mean, it, it did so much to shape who I am today, as anyone that knows me will understand. Um, and so I think there's a lot, there's a lot to food. I mean, there's, there's the basic understanding and appreciation for what we have, because we are very, very rich people, you know, um, to be able to, you know, live the way we live. I've often said, you know, I think some of the most remarkable things that happen were refrigeration and grocery stores. You know, if you want to talk about things that change the way we live, um, you know, so for me, it's everything, you know, there's that you know, nutrition and being healthy, because I'm just certainly a person that's very determined to be healthy and for my kids to learn how, learn how to eat, because so many people don't know that anymore. People don't know how to cook food. They have a misunderstanding of food. They believe the food label that says it has zero calories, even though there's a pile of sugar in it. You know, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what real food is. Um, so that's really important for me, something to teach them. Um, but also that it's such a huge thing in life that we can, it's an experience, right? Every day we have to eat multiple times a day and that you can create things that, you know, are fantastic and delicious that you can cook dinner parties and create experiences with family and friends and get, bring people together, right? Um, and that there are all of these, again, it's another way to teach them about the world and culture and different people in different places. You know, the number of ethnicities of food I've cooked for my kids and they always end up asking me what it is i made uh what did i make yesterday and liam liam sort of stopped and paused with an expression you'd be very familiar with and went dad how do you come up with these things you know <laughs> and i was so happy in that moment you know like it was just fantastic it's like this is coming from the kid that out ate me when in sushi i think when he was about a year and a yeah. half to two well, years and, old and that's it liam's favorite thing to eat is sushi and you know it's not just a pile of rice i mean he'll eat you know, tofu and all, you know, he'll eat all kinds of things. And certainly as they grow up, you know, the, they'll decide they don't like something. I do like something, but he loves, you know, curries and Indian food and Thai food and, and, and all of these things. And, and again, for me being a parent, but also these are things that I love. Well, doesn't that might make my life more enjoyable too, right? So I get to share the something that I really love to, you know, I love to cook. It's something I get to share with them. You know, I Instagrammed a picture the other day, and I forget what I said. It was like my little food spectators and my two kids uh, standing on chairs watching me, like, prep things to cook them lunch. You know, and the next picture was us sitting down eating, you know, the three of us together. Well, you know, how much fun is that? A different topic? Is that okay? Yeah. 
Um, what kind of toys do they have? Oh, man. Um, you know, that's that's an interesting one because when, well, and because now we ha- there are two, right? So when it was just Liam and, of course, before they go to school, it's much easier to sort of influence, uh, you know, I don't want to use the con- word control, but to, to have influence over what they are, are or not interested in. So with Liam, there was, you know, he didn't even watch anything really where there was any fighting. He certainly didn't you know, play with any toys or, you know, toy guns or anything like that at all that I can remember. Not a single thing. Um, you know, once they go to school, well, then all of a sudden there's a bigger influence. Watch Once they start watching some, some TV show, even kids' ones, you know, are unbelievably violent in a lot of cases, you know, to a degree I'm not really comfortable with. But um, then you have a second. Well, you know, they sort of have this head start, so to speak, you know, in the positives and in some cases the negatives, you know. So, you know, now it's, you know, there's a mix of things. I mean, they still have Transformer toys, but the Transformers have guns, you know. So uh, one of my favorite ones was my sister once uh, I came home. My family spends a lot of time with them. And uh, and Liam said, oh, and Jane said we're not allowed to have guns. And I said, oh, that's good because, you know, we don't really have guns in Dad's house. And he said, unless they shoot love. <laughs> You know, that's my sister for you, you know. So, you know, here's this moment where, you know, someone's trying to explain, you know, well, we don't we don't have things that hurt people. But if, you know, you're five, if, if your gun shoots love, that's just fine. And Dan, I know you work in a sporting store mm-hmm. where guns are for sale. Yeah. And where your, pardon me, knives, mm-hmm. um, bows and arrows, um, where... Uh, and I don't, I don't know that you work actually in that section, but where there's an education about mm-hmm. them, yeah, for sure. where there are policies and procedures, where your level of understanding about gun and gun safety and everything yeah. is also a part of your life. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's an interesting thing for me on a couple of levels. I mean, certainly I'm not, I'm not an anti-firearms person per se. I'm not really anti a whole lot of anything as long as people aren't hurting other people directly. So it's certainly, I think we live in a culture where there are still a lot of people that hunt. And in some ways I'd, li- I'd like to, again, being a food person, but also being very conscious of the, of, of, you know, food security in the food system and, you know, sort of modern mega farms and all the things that are in the food that we eat. You know, I would, I love the idea of, for example, eating, you know, grass-fed only wild, free-range animals, you know, that are not factory-farmed and all these other things. Um, you know, I like to joke that I'm a weak knee grocery shopper, <laughs> that I don't really have it in me to be 100%, because I think it's a funny way to say it. But, um, you know... I, Did you just say you're a weak need grocery shopper? I, I say that to friends and family that hunt. I just got that. Yeah. You spoke so quickly. <laughs> but that's funny. Yeah, a, a few years ago... <laughs> where that came from is a few years ago I've I've family managed to Little Island and and they all hunt and they're you know classic outdoorsmen um but they hunt and they they eat all this wild game that they harvest and and you know I'm all for that if if that's a life that you live and I remember my cousins sort of just they were determined they were going to get me out for deer season the next year you know and I just went you know guys like and I was trying to think of what to say and I said I'm just kind of a weak knee grocery shopper and they all I mean these are you know also you know, classically masculine big strong guys that hunt and and they all just laughed and laughed and laughed but uh, yeah I mean it it's an interesting thing so I mean and the boys have been in the store and so they know that there's firearms there um, you know we've talked about it and I try and explain to them that you know the difference between 
you know, owning a gun or having guns because you hunt, you know, and you're, you're, you're harvesting food. You put food on the table, food in the freezer, and then it's just another way to gather food where I'm going to go to the grocery store and buy it. Um, but that that's completely different than, than guns in conflict, you know? Um, and, and I think that kind of summarizes my opinion on, on, on firearms in general. Um, you know, you know, if, if guns are used for, for things like hunting or even, you know, target shooting is fun. That's one thing. Guns for conflict are an entirely different issue. Mm-hmm. Change of topic? Yes. Okay. This is fun. Um, I got one of the cutest pictures in a yesterday morning of the two of them doing at-home yoga to a yeah. Harry Potter uh-huh. themed class, um, which leads me to into the question of asking um, how you are teaching them body awareness and what kind of activities that you really work hard to expose them to. Yeah, for sure. I mean, certainly if you're talking body awareness, awareness in, in sort of developing, you know, your, you know, physicality and all these type of things, um, for sure. I mean, they're both in gymnastics from a very young age. I think, I'm trying to think, I guess they both started about two, um, which turns out to be a super fun thing to do. And again, coming from a guy that, that didn't originally envision himself having children, again, it's it's like my what I said about food. All of a sudden, there are these things that I love to do, and now they can come with me, and we can do it together, and it's just so much fun, you know? So, I mean, I think the first things, for sure, I mean, gymnastics was is really important. I think um, the people that I know that have excelled in, in, in sports and more sort of modern individual sports, not so much team sports, um, all, for the most part, had a strong background in something like gymnastics that just sort of develops good body awareness, sense you know, of, of yourself, uh, good strength, balance, core strength, things like that, um, for sure. Um, so gymnastics was a big one. They also both were on cross-country skis at about two, just after. Um, so, you know, Liam's six in a bit now, so he'll be in Jackrabbits at Nordic this year. It'll actually be his fourth year on skis at six years old. And Eli's three in a bit, and he'll be in Bunny Rabbits, and it's the second year on skis, you know. And they love it. And, you know, they're, I think... There's so many basic things. I mean, those are sports, but even uh, another funny one from when they were very young and they were learning to crawl. Um, our house had this sort of set of hardwood stairs with the landing, another set of hardwood stairs up, and they wanted to crawl up the stairs, you know? And, and some people's reaction was to go, oh my God, don't let them upstairs. And mine was to go, well, I'm just going to sort of, you know, go up the stairs one step at a time with them and I'll go behind them and I'll just sort of hold my hand behind his bum and he won't be able to fall down. But... You know, if he's ready to try and physically start learning how to do this, the coordination, the strength, the whatever, well, I'm not going to hold him back. I'm just going to, I'm going to make sure he's safe, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to stop him. You know, which again, I realize some people might be listening to that and going, oh my God, you let your... Well, I'm thinking about the, the six-year-old climbing up a rock wall and thinking, oh, yeah. I'm not going to stop him. No, for sure. And that's like, they, they're very, very active physical boys and um, they both walked very young. They both ran very young and they're they're very strong and they're um, they're quite athletic little people, um, which I think to me that's great. Um, I would rather have enabled them and helped them develop that way than held them back. I I know you do yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've seen you in this, in the studio. Yeah. Um, so even for yourself, oh, and I shouldn't say even for yourself. That's lousy. Let me restructure that sentence. You create your own self-awareness around stretching and strengthening. Mm-hmm. And the boys see you taking care of yourself in that way. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you're you're encouraging that at home. Oh, for sure. Not just to focus on strengthening, 
um, but that the, the stretching is equally as important for the balance of the body. Yeah, more of a, again, more health and well-being, not just, you know, not just the simple idea of, you know, again, simple masculinity being strength and, you know, being a big muscly person. I mean, that is not what makes someone strong, truly. Um, and certainly not what brings somebody health and well-being, right? I mean, I'm a prime example, and I'm prone to overdo it somewhat with, uh, you know, sort of higher intensity exercise. And a few years ago, I remember Kelly just going like, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt yourself. And sure enough, I, I, I did. I was sort of overdoing it. I ran too much and hurt my foot. And to this day, I've got this sort of nagging little injury. So I think for me, I, I really want them to grow up with a better understanding of sort of health and well-being in fitness. Um, you know, not just simple ideas of strength or achievement or beating a personal best or those types of things. And I think I came into yoga at a point in my life where I needed something to help me heal, right? Um, I met Amanda Cooley, who is the yoga instructor I go see. And the first time she met me was actually at work. She looked at me and went, yikes, I could fix you. And I looked at her and went, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean you could fix me? And she went, I, you know, your, your spinal posture and this and that, like, you're a mess. You need to, you need to come into the class and, and I can fix you. And I had developed an issue with a nerve problem related to having an old injury that I didn't know I had where I broke some vertebrae in my neck. And sure enough, within six months of going to her class, I was like almost a whole different person, right? Um, and so for me, it was more about, about that, about healing than it was about finding another way to develop strength or fitness. But at the same time, what I discovered was that it was an exceptional way to develop strength and fitness and balance, which also helps me with all the other things I love doing. Um, so yeah, I love the idea of them doing yoga and, and we just happened, well, it was ages ago. I remember like trying to find like kids yoga and we found this one YouTube based kids yoga channel that's from the UK and it's all these little kids yoga things. Um, there's not a class, it's just the woman, but they do it around stories. So there's one about penguins. I just happened to find it the other day and there was a Harry Potter one. So I knew I had to send Kelly that. Um, and so there's the kids doing yoga around, you know, a story told about uh, one of the Harry Potter episodes anyways. Um, what about touch, Dan? Uh, like I, I've been around you and the boys, um, not as much as Kelly by a long shot, but um, I watched them crawl all over your body. <laughs> yeah. um, so they're familiar with you. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not, and I, and I mean, you might think that's the most normal thing in the world, but I can certainly say in different households and even for different generations, mm-hmm. I'm a different oh, generation sure. than you, um, that it, that would not have been normal in my world to, um, to see my five brothers all over my dad's physical body. Yeah. Um, there was more of, um, of a distance in, um, maybe not even so much saying I love you. And, and I, and I've also heard you say many times, Hey buddy, love you. Dad mm-hmm. loves you. So there's, there's, um, can you talk just a little bit about the ways that you choose to verbally interact emotionally mm-hmm. with your kids because you talk about the connectivity and also where your your level of comfort has kind of maybe grown or changed over the years or maybe it hasn't I don't know in in um how you touch yeah yeah I mean again it's another thing that for me is really important I think um I think it's important for young men to grow up in an environment where they're told it's okay to say things like I love you, to give somebody a hug, to hold someone's hand, um, that somehow that isn't inherently not masculine, right? Like this idea that it's not manly to give somebody a hug, you know, or two men shouldn't necessarily hug each other. And I'm not suggesting that everybody feels that way, but we know some people do. Um, And again, I think 
you know, in my relationships with my male friends, there's lots of guys that hug each other, right? That this is, this is totally okay. Nobody feels like a weirdo. That was my gratitude Tuesday this week. Yeah. Like that, it, that's totally all right. Um, and for me, it was important that they sort of grow up, you know, get understanding that, that love from dad is something that is unconditional, right? So again, even those other things, like, like if you're angry about something or whatever, that there's never some idea that you, you're telling them that they're not okay or you don't love them or what have you, that no matter what you know, that the dad always loves you, right? That's, that's not ever going to change. Um, and as I said before, points of contact, I mean, how do you express that to people? You know, you hold hands or you hug or you do all these things, that these are natural, we're social creatures, right? Um, and that this is, these are, I mean, maybe not everybody agrees with me, of course, but these are natural things for us to do to express, you know, caring and kindness and, and love for other people. Um, and that you shouldn't somehow feel like that's not okay to do because, you know, you're boys or you're men. Um, I know of some men who will hug their boys, who will, uh, their sons, who will kiss them, who will snuggle them, uh, wrap them up in blankets and tuck them in at night and even lay down with them. Uh, and when they hit a certain age, things stop, they shake their hand. Um, and the, the physical part of love or, and even the saying, I love you stops unless someone died you know, Mm. and it's like a real severe situation where all of a sudden, awkwardly, uh, I love you because I I know you lost your best friend. But I also know some men my age um, who um, hug their sons and they're they're Kelly's age. They're in their late 20s or mid 20s and they still do hug them and kiss them. Yeah. And who run their hands through their hair when their sons walk by, they put their hand on their back or yeah. on their shoulder. And that is something that wasn't familiar for me in, in uh, certain age groups. Um, and it's interesting to see the change. And no, that's not the right word. It's beautiful to see the change. Yeah. Um, so I'm just curious as to how you sort of see yourself going forward in that. If like, and I know that might be difficult to say what you think you might do, but do you foresee Dan that you could put your your like hug a teenage son? Oh yeah, um, yeah for sure. Touch him on the back when he uh, uh, every day, not just because it's an occasion. No, for sure. I think uh, again, I, that's how I would want to be. I mean, I think it's a point where probably my boys will be old enough that they won't want me to say I love you in front of their friends or in public or they'll be embarrassed or something. There's a whole other stage there, right? Um, But I think even those things can be mitigated somewhat if you grow up in a household where you grow up in an environment where it's, it's, this is just what we do. This is normal, right? This is my family. This is my friend. And what about, what if you're the the dad uh, of that guy um, where all your boys' friends might not get their hugs and kisses from their dads, but they do from you. And you are that guy, you are that dad for a whole group of young men. It's definitely not something I thought of. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I certainly, yeah, it's hard to say. I'm surprised because your house was at one point the hub for the friend group. Yes, that's true. You're right. Um, And still is for dinner parties on different occasions. Uh, It surprises me that your head hasn't gone there. I guess I mean in the sense of, of when we're talking about showing affection, like I had never thought of the idea of, so again, to speak to what you're saying, um, certainly I have friends with, with 
kids, little boys, little girls. And we certainly all, like my kids hug them, we hug them, you know, like this just happens. I'd never really thought, okay, well, when, when, you know, Parker, one of these kids grows up and is 18 years old, am I going to give him a hug? But I think I almost mean it more in the sense that I hadn't really thought about it because it, to me, it, the idea is just second nature. And here's why. So I haven't seen um, Parker's uh, first son of my best friend from high school, Matt, who am I going to see this weekend, which is awesome. And Matt and I see each other. We always give each other a hug. So, and I see Parker, I give Parker a hug. So it, it doesn't like, I wouldn't stop hugging Matt when he turned 40, right? <laughs> so why would I, right? So why would I stop giving Parker a hug if he's 18 years old? You know? Well, that's my point though, Dan, yeah. because what I'm trying to point out is that you, while you might not be able to fathom stopping, there are others who have the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't dawn on them um, to not stop. Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, some of that's personal choice. So obviously, you know, if somebody else hits a point where they don't feel comfortable, then they have to make that decision if that's what they feel is right in their life. I think in my case, it's more, I want my boys to grow up with a you know, sense of emotional comfort where, you know, it, it's acceptable, that, that there isn't anything weird about this. You can be a man and show affection to other men, that there's nothing strange about that. I've also seen and followed Q um, that when we're over at your place and I, I want to hug your kids all the time, of yeah. course, but I will ask them, I will say, Liam, may I have a hug? Yeah. And if he says no, it's no. Yeah. Uh, and I don't cross that boundary if I run my hands through his hair and he goes, Kelly, stop that. Yeah. I stop. Um, that he, you have taught us and I think the group has been extremely respectful that touch is optional. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the, and just like putting themselves and saying, you know, I want to be yeah. alone. Uh, they've said, I don't want touch and they've approached or not approached at the end of the night and said, I do, yeah. or I don't want to hug, um, in their own time. So there's, there's body awareness and, uh, the emotional intelligence if, if, if they want an experience or not. Yeah. And I would never you just said it correctly, I, and I think that's something that they've learned. I would never force them to hug someone, you know, or or any or anything like that. Again, it it's even teaching them even for a really young age that, you know, that a these things are okay, but b it's your choice. You know, it's your body, they're your emotions. What you choose to do is what you choose to do. So yeah, and that's I do that. Like I ask my I ask my boys for a hug, and I'll say Liam, can I have a hug? And then I just walk up to him and grab him, right? And if he says no, well, he says no. Well, you're teaching personal boundaries, and yes. and I mean, I think lots of people can understand and sit down and go, "Oh, good lord, I wasn't raised that way," because you know, grandma comes in the door and it's give grandma a hug. It's Christmas yeah. morning, uh, uh, no, give grandma a hug, and it's like they're th those children are pushed past their personal boundaries. Mm -hmm. They're doing something they're not comfortable with in that moment. Yep, and because it's a family member or m grandma's friend or whoever, mom's friend, that. They're not allowed to assess their own feelings, um, to express their own feelings, mm -hmm. and that they're made to feel shameful. It's like it's bad. It's being seen as bad behavior. And some people would even say, you, you don't give grandma a hug, you go to your room. Mm -hmm. And so there's even a punishment that if I'm not allowed to push past your personal boundaries and I, and I allow other people to do it to you, which says a huge thing for these young children as they grow up to yes. become teenagers and now don't understand boundaries right. with and, their own bodies. And, and whether they are or are not allowed to tell someone, right, that they can, you know, again, have any form of contact. 
remember coaching, um, let's say a middle-aged woman and she, a lot of her issues were no boundaries. And I, one of her activities was to ask her son if she was allowed to hug him. And she was just flabbergasted. And she said, what do you mean I have to ask my son? He's my son. I said, well, that's nice, but you don't own him. Mm -hmm. Um, And I said, and do you not want to fast forward and see how these implications will play out when he's a teenager and he doesn't think he has to ask to touch someone? How would you feel if you got a phone call saying that your son decided he was touching whoever he wanted because he didn't learn consent? Well, and and that's, again, it's funny you mentioned that. I mean, that's another sort of growing conversation, thank God, in our society, um, you know, that also brings up this other really sort of difficult thing that we sort of can learn at least in the concepts of masculinity right and consent gets to be one of those things so again i think the idea of learning what you're saying you know that it's that it is that it is boundaries and that you do ask and if someone says no it doesn't matter if you just you know you say no to holding her hand or kissing them right that well they said no so that it's not it's there's zero question at that point right that you have no right Thank you. Um, I would love to go into your village approach to raising your kids because hmm. I have been fortunate to be a part of that village. Um, but you brought up some really cool points when we were sitting down, just kind of prepping for the podcast that I'd love for you to share. Yeah, for sure. I mean, certainly my little boys have spent a lot of time with, with a lot of people. Um, you know, they spent lots of time with, with my family as well. You know, my mother and father and sister have, have played a really big, big role in their lives. And they really never spent any time in, in daycare or anything else either, f- for the most part, a little bit here and there, um, preschool. But for th- otherwise, they were typically with a member of the family or someone. Um, and then the other, I think w- what you're speaking to is the other day we were talking about it and, um, you know, all of the friends, you know, that um, I've always said I've been extremely lucky to have way more really true and fantastic friends that I think some people um, are lucky enough to have and that m- those people have been huge parts of my kids' lives, you know, and that the men in particular have played enormous roles in my kids' lives. So they have, I don't know how many, you know, countless sort of almost pseudo, pseudo-uncles, right? So there's, there's Uncle Mike and Uncle Kieran and Steph and Byron and Matt and I, Derek, and I don't know who I'm forgetting, but, um, and that my boys know all these people so well that they're ecstatic when they're going to visit someone or they're coming over, um, you know, and, uh, and that these are all people that have wonderful strength of character, right? These are all really great men, you know, and, and uh, you know, as humanity goes, everybody has strengths and weaknesses and all these things. But at the end of the day, uh, as my kids grow up, you know, they're going to not just, you know, have me as their father, but they're also going to have all of these other strong male role models in their life, which I think, you know, w- we know is important for little boys, right? You know, it's, they're little now, but at some point, you know, I'm not going to be the coolest guy, right? <laughs> Dad's going to stop being the person they're most interested in. Um, and the fact that they're going to have all of these different strong male role models in their lives, I think is a huge gift to them, right? That, uh, you know, even, you know, having spent so much time with all of these different men that all have different styles of communicating and different knowledge and experience, you know, that, that all of that kind of coalesces, you know, around these kids and all is a part of sort of their upbringing, I think is very special. I've watched um, so much, just sat back and watched at these um, group dinners where you're at the barbecue, you're in the kitchen, you're you're cooking for everyone mm-hmm. nonstop. Um, and every single friend who is present 
uh, you know, we're chatting amongst each other and we're excited about each other's lives. And Liam and Eli are kind of running around digging holes in the garden and doing their, their kid thing. But as soon as they ask for attention from one of us, the focus shifts and, yeah. and there's appropriateness where we'll say, Liam, just a second, I'm finishing my conversation. Yeah. He's wonderful to wait. It's something that he's learned. Um, but the friends give him great attention mm-hmm. and make him feel valued, make both of them feel valued. Not that they're in the adult's way, yeah. but no, that no. they're a part of everything. Oh, for sure. And I remember when they were at their crawling stage and you've got a, a nice big deck or a set of stairs in your back um, where, you know, if your eyes aren't on them, someone's are. Yeah. And it's just understood that that got passed off to, to someone else in the room. Didn't even have to be communicated. Yeah. Friends just kind of picked up where you left off uh, and, and really, really was a village. Yeah, for sure. And it's more, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of speaking more from perspective of how how good this is for my kids, but isn't that awesome for me too? <laughs> you know, that, you know, you can have that group over. And again, that there are people that you trust so implicitly um, that, you know, if you're again, stepping out of the room that the phone rings or if you're cooking people dinner, that it's all good. You know, I don't, I don't have to worry or stress because I'm, I know that all of these people are, are there. They all care about the kids and they're all aware of what's going on and that I actually would, trust these people enough to make the right decisions as you said to speak to them with respect and treat them like a part of a part of what's going on in the in the on the occasions that i've been there as well dan i see that your friends have permission to say no to your children yes, they do they have permission to uh, and this is what i saw i saw them say no I saw them say, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. I saw when one of your boys was going into a temper tantrum where the, your male friends dealt with it. Yeah. They would do whatever they need to. So if it meant that that um, uh, the boys had to be questioned about their intention, and I would hear them say, buddy, why would you hit your brother? Yeah. Do you think your brother is going to hurt if you take that bat and hit him or throw that ball. Do you think that would hurt your head? So if he threw the bat at your head. So I heard your friends um, question them with emotionally intelligent questions. I heard your friends um, uh, uh, use the proper tone of voice. I never saw them shame your sons in uh, trying to discipline them and say things like, well, you know, in, in a, in a tone of voice that was shaming Mm -hmm. or in a way that they could word a question. So I saw them construct their sentences in very healthy ways where your sons were allowed to think how they would feel or how their, that their brother would feel. And consequently from that, put themselves in their own time out or kind of stand there and look, you know, sometimes just dumb, like wide eyed yeah. Yeah, yeah. because you could see that they were just kind of like, ah, shit, I got to think. Yeah. And the, the, the behavior, the temper tantrum stopped because they were thinking so damn hard. Mm-hmm. And that was cool. It was cool to watch that while all the girls were sitting around, the females were having their tea and coffee. None of them budged. None of them even had to blink an eye like, oh, this is a feminine thing I should do. Yeah. I didn't see anything where the the women thought, that's my job. I saw the men stand up. Yeah. If they were the ones right there, it was whoever was there took on the role. Yeah. And male or female had no question here. Yeah, for sure. I also want to add that 
no one threw you under the bus because I think, and I know this goes for a different generation for sure. I'm going to get your father. Right. There is a whole generation, probably several generations where that was a threat. And that meant dad was coming in to punish. Dad was the bad cop. Right. Right. And so at no point do the friends sit there and say, I'm going to get dad. Think about what you do Mm -hmm. before I tell dad. And it makes you a victim in, in some sense where you're not seen as the emotionally intelligent, able to handle and teach coping skills kind of person that you are. It's just the enforcers coming in. Uh, And so you're not tossed under the bus. They don't have to fear you through the pseudo uncles. Yeah. Again, aren't I lucky? (laughs) I mean, really? And that's why I say, I mean, I, I, I am lucky to have those people in my life and, um, and, and so are my kids, you know, in a really big way. So I'd like to ask you if you're comfortable. The relationship with your own father, is that is is that something that you are consciously repeating because it was a good experience and that you want to give to your children? Is it something that you are looking to improve or is it something that you're actively trying to, I won't say avoid, but do better than? Uh, certainly do better than. Um, like my father's a wonderful man, um, but when... I was young when my sister and I were young. He wasn't present. Um, so uh, initially he wasn't present because he worked out of town lots. He was a contractor and he worked on projects all over the place, all over the country. So he wasn't he wasn't around a lot. Um, you know, my parents had difficulties when my sister and I were quite young. Um, my dad, uh, who's been sober since I'm 12, I think, but developed alcoholism and was a drinker. And, and so, you know... Whether it was the stage at which I was young enough that he wasn't there because he was working or later on, he wasn't really present until I was an adolescent, you know? So there's a huge developmental stage, you know, kind of most of it, um, that he wasn't really there 100%, you know? Um, So certainly that's not something I want to repeat. You know, my case, um, you know, I grew up, you know, having issues with, you know, emotional control and, and, and handling things appropriately as my mother can attest to. (laughs) And, uh, and so that's, that's something that I've worked really hard on myself, um, to sort of learn about myself and my upbringing and developmental stages of kids and things like that, which would really, I did for me. Um, the interesting sidebar is that it, it taught me so much about how I wanted to be for my kids. Um, and so I certainly trying really hard, um, to sort of try and do what I think um, little boys need, you know? It's neat because Karen wrote out a question saying, what did you feel was missing from your own childhood to develop your own emotional intelligence? And I, you may have just answered that question. Yeah, I mean, certainly I think, um, and again, not that I didn't have uncles or friends, and again, my mom had friends, et cetera, but I didn't have that. So we were speaking about, about all of the guys, right? The pseudo uncles and how much time my kids, even at the very young age they are now, have spent with these people, um, and I didn't have that experience, you know. Um, so I certainly didn't grow up with this sort of breadth of strong uh, male role models in my life the way that they are. Uh, and so I think that's something I was certainly missing. Um, and and again, I, this is I I see my little boys learning these things and emotional coping skills, and and as you say that they learn it from all these other people. And sometimes it's great that it's not dad because they love these guys and they respect these guys. And and when one of these other men goes, whoa, whoa, hold on a minute. You know, what are you doing here? You know, like you say, you know, do you, you know, and they've parodied things that I've said, for example, you know, the, um, 
you know, would you want Eli to hit you? You know, would it hurt if he hit you? Well, then should you hit him? You know, and if so, if you shouldn't have hit him, then what do you think you should do now, buddy? You think you owe him an apology? You know, that kind of thing. But to have another guy that they love and respect stop them in their tracks and say that, you know, really, it does really grab them, right? Um, so I think these are things that they're learning in a way that I just didn't, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm really, really happy about that. Were you bullied? Did you get bullied at all, Dan? Like, I mean, I want to talk about, and you can talk about if a female bullied you, a male bullied you, it does, and I know there's all different kinds of ways mm-hmm. that people can bully. Um, you can be bullied by people pleasers yeah. as much as you can by a fist in your face. Yeah, I definitely was. I mean, if there's something I identify with in bullying, it would certainly be, you know, being a young boy, you know, being the small kid, um, being the kid that hit puberty late and had no hair in his legs in the locker room in gym class, you know, like these. You were that? Oh, God, yes. I okay, no, well, the this? listeners can't okay. see you. So, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly not a big man, but I'm six foot tall. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly tall. I'm fairly athletic. I guess that's probably the best way to self-describe. Lean. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but I was a really, really small kid. So I, when I went to high school, I weighed somewhere around 90 pounds and I was just under five feet tall. <laughs> so I was not, uh, I was the, the tiny kid, right? And I didn't really grow at all until... Till much later, I mean, a good story to, to explain that, as my friend Matt I spoke of earlier. I think we came back, I think it was the after summer holidays, maybe going to grade 11 or something, and I had been shorter than kind of everybody, and I grew almost all kind of at once. And uh, and we we stood up, we got to West, West Ferris High School, and we stood up to get off the bus, and he just turned around and went, holy shit, you're taller than me. And he was just like, when did that happen? Like, I, I had no idea. When did you get taller than me? And so I was basically this height at that point, I guess, because Matt's about 5'10 or 5'11, I think. Um, but yeah, so I, so I sort of grew up, I went through my whole first stages of high school, which is challenging for anybody, man or woman. Um, but being this really small, small little guy, you know, um, you know, and I, I, it's not a joke. I mean, if you're the, if you're the little guy with no leg hair in grade 10 gym, I mean, this is, this is rough. <laughs> you know, this is not something that everybody might've experienced, but I didn't know that. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I'm sure that you guys can relate to the ways that other young girls are really oh, terrible and nasty to other young girls. Well, boys are too. Okay. Um, you know, and so Again, again, we're talking about masculinity. So imagine being that boy. I mean, that's a pretty emasculating experience, right? Um, you know, and so I also, you know, wasn't your classic team sports kind of guy. And I was going to the sports high school and, you know, the coach wanted me to play football. And I said no, because I was tiny, didn't want to get squashed. He wanted me to play because I could run fast and I was coordinated and I could catch a ball, right? But, you know, I sort of put myself on the out. So I went through sort of that stage of life not really fitting in with that kind of boys club kind of atmosphere, you know, the football team, the male sports, the, you know, being tough, masculine, all that kind of stuff. Well, that wasn't really me. Um, so yeah, that, that was, that was a little bit rough, certainly. Did you get bullied for that? Or, or do you, in the bullying, cause there's different kinds of bullying. Bullying can also mean that you're pushed to the outside of a group too. Well, I, yeah, and that certainly happens. I mean, when you're in that atmosphere, um, 
that that does happen. I mean, I kind of put myself on the outside to a certain extent because I didn't want to participate a lot in, again, football, etc. But uh, also, once you become the guy that isn't interested in that stuff, you're not part of the club, right? And so you are very much pushed to the outside. You know, you're not the you're not the cool guy on the football team or what have you. Uh, and I would certainly call that a form of bullying. I think um, that whole you're on the team, you're not on the team kind of thing. Um, happens a lot with those sports, uh, particularly in high schools. So how do you, I'll say prepare, um, for, for Liam and Eli growing up, perhaps wanting, I mean, I've seen Eli's coordination. Mm-hmm. He will play soccer. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about organized sports and, and the way you want to parent them either into it, out of it, during it? Um, I have mixed feelings about team sports, uh, I mean, obviously part of that comes from, from my experience and I'm more of a solo sports guy. I'm into all kinds of things, but they're virtually speaking all uh, solo endeavors. Um, I think there can be benefits to them. I mean, certainly learning how sort of team camaraderie and, and working together, the cooperation, teamwork, all that, that can be great. Um, but I focus more on, you know, helping them learn to have a strong sense of health self, um, you know, so to me, that's more important. I certainly would like to see them, uh, you know, go more in that direction than something like hockey or football, those types of things. Certainly. Is it a preparatory conversation that you have with kids, though, if they are going to be engaged in the locker room kind of scenarios? Um, I think there's a point where that would be necessary. It's I'm certainly not there yet. Um, and I can't say that I entirely know how I would handle that in the future. But again, I think for me, the idea that they have a really strong foundation and strong sense of self, um, self-awareness and self-identity is really, really crucial. So that even if you do, you know, even if they choose to go into some team sport or what have you, that they go into that with a really, really strong self-identity, you know, that they're not really, you know, sure, there may be that bully, there may be whatever, but it isn't really going to break them down as much, hopefully, um, because they're stronger on the inside as, as little independent people, you know, um, that's sort of what's most important to me. Um, I don't think I'm the type of parent that if there's something I really want to do, that I'm just going to put my foot down and go, absolutely not. Um, but we'll see. <laughs> that may happen. And the other thing I think is just is is helping them be interested and love doing things that that are focus on themselves and their own development physically, emo- mentally, emotionally, all of the above, um, which I think is sort of happening by default because, again, these are the things, those are the types of things that I like doing. Um, and certainly they've grown to have an interest in the things that I like to do, I think in part just because they see my excitement and enthusiasm about the things that I love doing. You know, I really love, you know, running and riding bikes and cross-country skiing and paddling, all these things. I mean, I'm just excited all the time about doing it. And so they're really excited and they've already had so much experience. Um, you know, the number of things and they've done in places they've gone, is really pretty wonderful. So I think that's sort of already happening kind of organically anyways. It'll be interesting to see when they hit certain ages, mm-hmm. though, because the school environment presents it. Yeah. And it comes in at a very young age in elementary, like, you know, around grade four or five, when they're already in small schools, mm-hmm. it's almost every student makes the volleyball team yeah. or the basketball team or something. Um, and just how phys ed classes are, are, well, I don't even know, actually. Is there such thing as phys ed anymore? Yeah, there is. And, and you're right. At the same time, there there are a lot more alternative sports 
um, that you have access to in school, even in elementary school. I was asked to help out with the potentially with the Alliance cross country ski team. <laughs> it's like a, I don't know, I guess coaching of some kind or something, you know, for example. So, I mean, these are things, again, when I went to school, you know, elementary school, we may have done like cross country skiing as an elective, but you couldn't do it as a sport. There wasn't a team, you know, it would have been those things, you know, you know, soccer, basketball, volleyball, maybe hockey at a later age, uh, football, that type of stuff. There weren't really a whole lot of alternatives to the basic sort of standard sports. I think now there's a lot more that they can do. Um, and I think, you know, even if it's not in school, um, you know, again, you look, this will be Liam's third year doing the little kids programs at North Bay Nordic. It'll be Eli's first year. You know, by the time they get to that age, they'll already have been doing this for so long. Um, that I think if they're really in love with these other things and they're really interested in it and they keep, you know, following the developmental path with those other sports, you know, gymnastics, cross-country skiing, et cetera, it doesn't mean they aren't going to want to play in the volleyball team. And by all means, if they want to, okay. But um, I think there's, it's, there's just so much more opportunity for them now than, you know, you know, my father would have had or your father would have had. Emotional intelligence. Can we talk about it for a minute? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, both Kelly and I spend a lot of our days teaching people emotional intelligence, so much so, Dan, that we have Sips of Sanity podcast show with a whole series just about that for people. My question to you, um, uh, or invitation to you is to talk a little bit about some of the tools that you like to give your kids. And one of the ones that I see right off the bat with you is how well you listen. Mm. And not everyone understands that emotionally intelligent conversations have got to begin with listening skills or, or the rest of the tools can't really Don't work, work yeah. well. But I, I do see where when you listen, you engage in eye contact. And that is something that some both men and women can struggle with mm-hmm. is eye contact um, and body language, the openness and engagement of um, body language in a conversation, keeping the head up, everything, um, and not feeling all like all of the stress in the muscles. So is that just an, can I just throw that question at you as to what type of emotional intelligence tools you like? Yeah. And certainly like with Liam and Eli, I mean, that's, these are all things that I, I do try and work on. And, and again, it speaks back to sort of the you know, what happens if they're, they're angry, upset, et cetera, you know, you know, rather than getting mad back at them, I, I try and ask them, you know, encourage them to, you know, express their emotions. What, you know, help, you know, find the words, help me understand, you know, tell me how you're feeling. What are your needs? What are you feeling inside? What are you angry about? You know, because I want them to learn how to express that. Right. So, you know, how do you find the words for it? How do you explain it to another person? I mean, that's great for a little person, but it carries all the way up to the idea of having a relationship with a partner, right? If you can't explain, if you're boiling with emotions, but you can't find the word to explain it to somebody else, well, how are you ever going to find a commonality or common ground, right? So, I mean, that's that's a really big one for sure. Well, you've, you've covered a couple because you're talking about listening and you're mm-hmm. talking about inte- emotionally intelligent questions because some people uh, can ask questions, but they don't ask the right ones and then they repeat them. Mm-hmm. So they get stuck in their own pattern, not realizing that they're the part of the problem, even though they think they're communicating. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I guess to sort of backtrack to what I just said, I guess the other part would be to letting them know it's a safe place for them to do that, right? 
So even the way I try and do that for them to, you know, to, to ask them to express themselves, but in a way that's safe, you know, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that when I'm angry or using an angry tone of voice or, or angry body language that I'm trying to be open and calm and do the things you said, encourage eye contact. Well, it's congruency, right? right? So if you're saying it's a safe place, you can talk, but your arms are folded or you're, you know, you're paying Mm -hmm. attention to what you're chopping in the kitchen instead of looking at them, or you are saying it's a safe place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, You know, all of those mixed signals are are sent uh, and and they know it's not. So there's congruency as well. Mm -hmm. So with that then, do you also, um, oh, how do I word this? Uh, Do you stay away? I don't know how to word this, Dan. Do you stay away from punishment-based conversations? Do you focus on, is that good? Is that a good way to word it? I certainly, yeah, I know what you're saying. Okay. I, I definitely try to. And that's that's a tough one because we kind of, I mean, we live in a society where things are based on sort of rewards and punishments to a certain extent, right? I mean, you, do, you break the law, you go to jail. You do a good job, you get a salary raise. I don't know. Like, I mean, that that's sort of the foundations of a lot of the things in our society, for sure. Um, you know, to a certain extent. It's challenging with kids. Like I, I, I don't want to be a parent that that has no other tools to deal with my kids other than to sort of offer them a, a, a candy cane if they do a good job and a punishment if they don't want to do what I want. Like that would be that's really troubling for me, you know. So I think encouraging them to to understand why, you know, why is it that you should, you know, you should want to clean up your toys before you start doing something else. Why is it? that you should, here's one, why is it you should ask to be excused from the dinner table before you leave and then clear your plate? You know, that's sort of an old-fashioned kind of thing maybe to some people, but hey, you know what, someone's taking the time to, to cook you dinner, we're sitting down as a family, and, you know, why should you, why should you want to do that? Because you're being respectful to the people that are at the table, the person that cooked you dinner, you're not expecting somebody else to clean up everything for you, you're participating, I mean, sort of engagement-based things whenever I can. Well, that talks to me about having a healthy balance in emotions is the goal. Mm -hmm. So the punishment, so to speak, loosely termed, would be the imbalance of emotions. Yeah. And it's something that if they feel it within them, if they're now understanding what a healthy place looks like, that that is the reason and the motivation to doing those things. Yeah, and I guess the difference, so in what I was just saying, between going, okay, well, you didn't clear your plate, so you're getting punished or something, and sort of, you know, asking them to do it. If they don't do it, okay, you let it go for a little bit, and then they come back and go, okay, well, I want a snack now. All right, well, you know, did you did you clear your plate after dinner? Well, no. Well, do you think you could go clear your plate, and then we'll get you a snack? You know, so again, I, I guess it's still kind of reward-based, but it's more, hey, you know, th- there's sort of a chain of events here, and I'm asking you to participate and cooperate, and, and, and that that's sort of the level of expectation, but I'm not going to, you know, get angry or say, well, if, if you didn't clear your plate, you don't get to play with Optimus Prime tonight. Well, that would be kind of immature, wouldn't it? I don't know. Well, I think if it's consistent um, and they grow up understanding all of those things and there's communication around it, then that is the balance. That mm-hmm. is the healthiness. It, and it's easy. Then there's, a, then there's just a flow with it. There doesn't have to be punishment-based systems. Yeah, hopefully. That's the goal. Um, Thank you. What a pleasure. I, I had a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Oh, that's good. Um, 
Dan, um, thank you very much for taking your time to come and talk to us during Men's Month. It was very important to Kelly and I um, to find a, a, a father who um, looks at emotional intelligence in raising their children, but also within their own life. And you, you, you really outlined that today in your choice of friendships, um, in who you put in your own world, never mind just your children's world, but they were in your world first. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it says to me, to, to me a lot about who you choose to be. And one of the things that I think Kelly and I love so much about you is that there's this conscious effort of how you want to define being masculine. Mm-hmm. And that that's a wonderful thing is that you're, you're awake enough to, to look at yourself um, and then offer that as being a dad to son, to these two young boys. And yeah, it's been a, it's been a really interesting journey, and I've learned I've learned an awful lot in the process. I think at one point I thanked you for being a father figure to me. Really? Yeah, huh. I, and I've done this to a couple friends, especially within the family or within the friend group. That because I know, like my mom taught me from a very young age that you can't get everything that you need from your mother or yeah. your father. And instead mm-hmm. of faulting sure. them for what they can't provide, find many mothers, find many fathers, which yeah. is what you've talked about. Um, and my friends in, in many different situations have been better fathers for me than my own. Uh, and, and certainly I think it's case in point right here with you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. For and I coming. appreciate being invited to come. This is really, uh, yeah. as I said, you know, conversation that I've had in part over the years, you know, in different places, different people, and it's interesting to bring it all together. Thank you. Um, we are going to close the show. And as always, we will offer to people, uh, if you have questions or hopefully tons of comments after today's <laughs> podcast, um, or just ideas for podcasts in general, you can email us at info at And uh, we will be here next Saturday to bring another Men's Month podcast to you.